Hi, I'm Jake Parker with the What's Your Story podcast. Here I talk with my guests about their life experiences as well as current and long-term goals and what gets them through the ups and downs. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, and if you don't already, follow my Instagram account at jparkerfitlife for actionable tips daily to live a healthier lifestyle and for access to my YouTube and blog. Enjoy the show. Hi, guys. This is Jake Parker with the What's Your Story podcast. Uh, today, my guest is AJ Harbinger. Uh, he is the co-host of the Art of Charm podcast uh, based out of L.A., so I'll go ahead and let him give a little bit of an introduction and background on his end. Thank you for having me. So the Art of Charm started about 12 years ago now. We originally started with dating advice, how to be more confident when it came to approaching the opposite sex. And the show has grown now into a coaching company. And the direction is now shifted a little bit to just general social skills. How do you become more confident in social situations, especially when we're getting more and more comfortable talking to our phone and talking less and less to humans. So how do we really bolster those conversation skills? That's what the art of charm is all about. And so talk a little bit about how you got started, how you sort of made a big career shift to uh, the self-development and starting up the, the art of charm. Yeah, I was in graduate school at the time. I was working on a cancer biology PhD and my research started to get stifled a little bit. I was getting some negative results. My confidence was shaken and my lab mates didn't really have a great relationship with them. And I was trying to figure out how I could create better friendships and ultimately just get better at communicating because I knew it was holding me back. And we started the podcast sort of on a lark as a bit of a hobby, really dedicated to dating advice. And I started to realize that a lot of the stuff I was learning about in terms of building confidence with women really applied in all areas of your life, how to be more comfortable and confident in social realms. And my graduate school career, as it started to really struggle, I realized that you know maybe I wasn't in the right place. Maybe I was doing some things uh, that I thought would make my family happy and make my family proud of me but ultimately wasn't who I wanted to be. And, and thankfully enough, the podcast started to take off and grew in popularity. And ultimately, it gave me an opportunity to drop out of graduate school and, and move into podcasting and coaching full time. Yeah. So how did you deal with that identity shift? I know that you've talked uh, on the show before about how your dad and people in your family uh, always you know, had planned on you being a doctor. And that's something you talked about as a kid and growing up. And going through and earning your degree and uh, starting to go on that course, what were some of the things that you realized that made you think that that wasn't your life's course? And how did you deal with shifting that identity? Well, I think the biggest thing is when I got to graduate school, you know, there was a mismatch in terms of personality and enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. I went into graduate school thinking that a lot of the grad students would be like me. And when I got there, I realized that they had dedicated their whole lives to science. And for me, it was more of a pursuit to basically make my dad proud and make my dad happy. So as my relationships in graduate school didn't really blossom like I thought they would, I didn't feel as relatable to the people who are in my class, I really started to struggle. And I started to question myself, like, am I doing the right thing? And I started the podcast as a hobby and it became something that I would stay up all night thinking about, get up early to work on. And it really was just getting more and more of my attention. And then this coaching opportunity to actually help other people who are struggling with some introversion, some anxiety, get better in conversation that got me up in the morning. That really got me excited. 
And I remember we had started the podcast and we started to have some coaching clients and we were doing some phone coaching and I was finishing up a session with a guy who was in Boston. I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time and thinking to myself, wow, I really enjoyed this phone call. I'm dreading going into the lab to check in on that experiment right now. Man, I think I should just stop doing this lab work. Mm-hmm. Then the difficult part was deciding how to tell my dad and let him down because a lot of his identity was wrapped up in my success academically, especially on this path to become a doctor. How did you, did you feel like that it was a weight off your shoulders when you started focusing your efforts more on the things that you enjoyed and were passionate about? And did you hold some sort of guilt for a while? And how did you sort of get over that? And what advice would you give to people who uh, maybe want to make a shift in their life or they feel like they're doing something they're passionate about um, and trading in a sort of safer route or something like that? Yeah, you know, I wish it was just a total weight off my shoulders, but it was leaping into the unknown. You know, I was in graduate school. I knew that if I stayed there another three years, I'd have a PhD, I'd have a job, I'd have a career. And no one in my family had done any business. So I didn't have uncles or my relatives to really ask hey, how do I become an entrepreneur? How do I build something? So for me, it was really walking into the unknown. And that first you know, three to four months, it was really scary. It was filled with a lot of, did I make the right choice? Am I doing the right thing? Obviously, a lot of anger from my family, having decided to move across country to literally give up this amazing position in a graduate school that I'd worked really hard to earn. So I would say it was around three or four months later, I remember we were walking into studio and I was interviewing a a big guest with our our co-host at the time. And it just sort of dawned on me like, wow, you know, before I would have had to really like work up the energy and enthusiasm just to show up at work in the lab. And here I have this amazing opportunity now and I'm excited to get up in the morning. And when that shift happened, when I stopped regretting the decision and just focused on being grateful for the opportunity in front of me, it did feel like a weight was lifted off. And after that, my dad saw a change in my behavior and our conversations changed. And ultimately, he came to realize that, you know, me being happy wasn't in medicine. Me being happy was being a business owner, being able to coach and and help other people. And fortunately enough for me, I got a chance to fly back out to the University of Michigan and give a talk talking about the art of charm and my dad got to attend it and and it was really a proud moment for both of us to be able to celebrate all the the hard work that I'd put into the art of charm. Mm -hmm. Yeah so talk a little bit about what the vision is like and the whole goal and long-term and short-term strategies when you started out the art of charm 12 years ago uh, how have you been able to navigate the different changes which are obviously huge in the technology and media space uh, as well as changing your business model from, I know it was very heavily emphasis, heavy emphasis on dating when you started out uh, and then grew more into overall well-being and social development. Yeah, you know, to start, I think that the biggest thing is I'm constantly learning. Mm-hmm. Um, to stay competitive in, in any space, you are constantly learning and watching what other people are doing and, and trying to stay up to date on the latest trends. But the same time focusing on being really good at one thing. And for us, in the very beginning, we decided that was going to be podcasting. That was our sole focus. And, you know, we dedicated the last 12 years to building an audience and building a following on the podcast by delivering great content. So 
for us, that was the, the crux of everything. The podcast generated all of our leads, ultimately generated all of the business and provided us amazing opportunities to have these wonderful conversations. Now, through all of that, you know, I started the business in my mid-20s. So now I'm in my late 30s and having started in my mid-20s, obviously my goals and my dreams and even my passions have shifted quite a bit. You know, in the beginning, I was really concerned about who I was dating and the quality of my relationship with a girlfriend. Uh, as I moved into my 30s and started to have quality relationships, I realized that, wow, you know, friendship is important. The ability to network and meet people and communicate effectively is really important. And the guests on our show started to talk about, hey, you know, some of this stuff has impacted me not just in dating, but also socially and also in business and working through that social anxiety can really help you grow. So the company kind of transitioned and matured as we matured, you know, as business partners in our mid twenties, moving into our thirties, we went through that transition and, and we've been fortunate enough to choose a brand and have solid branding that could make the transition with us. Um, so that's really the most important thing when it comes to what the goals were in the beginning and, and ultimately where we are now. I think what's been really exciting for us is, is now opening up our doors to women and, and working with businesses. So, you know, when I first started this, I was strictly working with men. It was in a very small, limited capacity was the coaching. And now it's really grown. It's online. We work with corporations. We work with women. We have co-ed classes. And now we're expanding into Europe. So it has definitely been an exciting ride. And I, I don't think in my 20s, I, I would have mapped it out to what it's become here in my 30s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember um, seeing recently that you're heading to, Art Charm's heading to Europe in the fall. Is that correct? Yeah, we're heading to Vienna. We have a couple coaches out there who've been doing online coaching and a ton of public speaking in this space for years and years now. And when we hired them and brought them on, they were supporting us in our online coaching efforts and sort of begging us, hey, come on out to Europe. We, we have a, a great space here in Vienna and we have a lot of interest in, in terms of Art of Charm coaching. So we decided, the last time we were in Europe, actually it was uh, nine years ago now, we decided to go back and ideally we'll be opening a location there in the next couple of years. So how do you approach um, the, obviously when you look at different countries, the cultures and the people can be very different. How do you approach um, using the principles that you teach in the art of charm, but putting them in different contexts in different cultures? So one of the key differentiators of the art of charm, and I would say most, if not all of our competitors is that we put a major emphasis on your nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. And nonverbal communication is universal. It does not vary by culture. It's hardwired into all of our human nature to respond to threats, to respond with interests. So the facial expressions you're making, the posture you're carrying yourself with, these are all important factors of communication that unfortunately a lot of us don't think about. We just think about the words and am I saying the right words? Mm -hmm. So in our week-long training program, we've put an emphasis on body language so much so that we actually film you interacting with our coaches and we'll play back the video breaking down that body language. And you know, nine years ago when we went to Europe the first time, we were very nervous of how would people respond to what we teach? Is this just American culture? And mm -hmm. we realized very quickly that when you send the right signals non-verbally, it goes a long way to support you if you can't speak the language. Yeah. People still feel warm, friendly, and responsive to you when you have the right nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. Now, with all of that, 
you know, the most important thing is taking interest in the other person. So everything that we teach is not about just talking about yourself and how great you are, but focusing in on the other person, becoming a better listener. And those skills translate across cultures. The last thing that I want to touch on is, is literally touch and the importance of touch and how for a lot of us, you know, we have this concept of personal space that's often pretty distant and, and makes us feel removed. And we say at the Art of Charm, the more committed you are to the interaction, the closer you end up getting to the person that you're interacting with, the more committed they become to the interaction. And that's really what's allowed us to power through those moments where maybe we don't speak the language, we're in an unfamiliar location, and we don't know anyone. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so another question that comes to mind for me is, you obviously spend a lot of time with people that are very elite in the context of knowing about relationships and communication uh, in the bigger guests and personalities you work with. And then even in the same context, I think that most of the people that are your clients are probably more aware of relational and communication dynamics than the average person. Uh, but if you were to just go to, let's say, a random social event, what are some of the things that you think in society today are the things that people struggle with when making relationships with new people or communicating? Yeah, so the, the first thing comes down to not having approachable body language. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I laugh about now whenever I go to an event is just how many people are staring at their phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us don't realize that we're actually using our phone as a safety behavior. Mm -hmm. It keeps us from having to interact with other people and ultimately it makes us unapproachable. But we don't realize we're sending off that signal. We're just like, oh, I got to check my Instagram or, oh, you know, I don't want to not have anything to do. I don't want to stand here alone. So that first signal of just always being on your phone tells everyone else this person isn't interested in having a conversation. This person's not open to conversation. So changing that one signal, recognizing that safety behavior and keeping your phone in your pocket and just making good eye contact with people goes a long way when we're going out in social gathering and trying to meet new people. Um, that's one safety behavior. Another safety behavior is, is people tend to, you know, stand off to the side, almost against the wall and out of the spotlight because they don't want to be seen. But if you're not seen, you can't actually make a first impression. So when you understand the importance of making a good first impression, you understand that being visible is an important part of that. So uh, a lot of people who have social anxiety are a little introverted. They, they tend to hide back. And in that hiding back, they miss easy opportunities for conversation, especially at a networking event. Mm -hmm. How would you say that in the age that we live in where it's like almost a superpower to not look at your phone for like 10 minutes, how can people start to change their relationship with technology and kind of rid some of those almost addictive behaviors that we have in checking our phones? So one of my favorite tricks is to just turn on airplane mode. You know, when I have to be productive, when I have something that I needs my full attention, I will use airplane mode. And a lot of people look at me funny, like, well, that's only supposed to be used when you're on an airplane. Mm -hmm. But actually just disconnecting your device from the internet goes a long way towards breaking that cycle of notifications and dings and noises and vibrations that pull your attention right back in. Um, that's one. Another one is to turn off your notifications on all of these apps. Um, the third thing I've done is I've deleted all of my social media apps from my phone. So I have to physically log in on a desktop or on my laptop to check my Facebook or check my Instagram. And just that one extra step 
yeah. allows me to be really thoughtful about my use of technology. Yeah. And there was a great uh, article that just came out in the New York Times about this idea that it's now become a status symbol to not interact with technology. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that only the elites could afford a smartphone and only elites had this technology. And now it's actually working the opposite direction where people don't want to interact with devices. And I feel that the easiest way to break it is to figure out those triggers in your life. For me, the triggers are being bored. Yeah. So if it's on my phone, I'll check it out. So removing that trigger so that if I want to go on Facebook, it's an added extra effort. Mm hmm yeah, I've actually started doing the same thing. Like I know when I started to kind of look at my relationship with my phone and technology, I realized that most of the time when I was getting on, I wasn't even really getting anything out of it. It was just to kind of occupy a few minutes of the day where one of the classic examples is just like how many people are on their phone when they're waiting in line at the grocery store, which is just silly because it's not, you don't have enough time to get anything of value, but you just kind of, your, your natural tendency is to want to suck up that time. And so I think that the, Deleting the social media apps is very useful too. Like I will still get it on my phone, but most of the time I will make myself go and have to re-download it. So like you said, I go through the whole thought process of, do I really need to do this right now? Is it really important or, or can I wait for later? Or am I just sucking up some, some spare time? Yeah, there's even a, a plugin on Chrome, Newsfeed Eradicator, that will just block the newsfeed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, my business does rely on Facebook to a degree, interacting in our private groups, and I do get a lot of Facebook messages. So I can't block Facebook entirely from every device, but I, on my desktop and my laptop, I've blocked the newsfeed so that I don't just get sucked into endlessly scrolling and finding bits of information about people that I barely know mm -hmm. that really aren't that important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I think um, the huge influx of social media uh, kind of makes difficult is you, you touched on earlier how it's so important for you to be continuously learning. And so people that are busy and have jobs and families and personal interests and things like that, which you do as well to, uh, to a high scale, um, how, how would you recommend that people continue to learn on a day to day and week to week basis? And what are your uh, favorite methods of learning? So the absolute most important time for me is my morning and evening routines. So mm -hmm. what I do when I wake up and what I do when I go to bed. And both of those moments do not involve my cell phone. So all of my phone and device chargers are in the living room. I don't allow any electronics to really enter the bedroom. So I'm not interacting with electronics. When I wake up, I don't need that interaction. I also don't need it when I'm going to sleep. So what that means is I end up reading books. I have, at any given time, I have three books to four books that I'm working my way through, one to two nonfiction, one to two fiction. And I have a notebook that I'm, I'm religiously using to document what I'm learning from the books that I'm reading. Mm -hmm. And I think that practice, that ritual of consuming a little bit of information in the morning and in the evening that's from a book instead of from your phone that'll take you down all those rabbit holes and, and basically can ruin your morning uh, has been one of the easiest ways for me to continue learning without having to sacrifice much in terms of my routines and mm -hmm. have to dedicate hours and hours and hours to it. Yeah. I think you said something there that is, it would be a huge takeaway for anyone out there. And that's just not having uh, your phone in your bedroom. And especially on top of that, not using it as your alarm in the morning, if you can help it, because what happens there for most people is you probably go and hit the alarm 
and then you maybe snooze it a couple times and then you get back on and you see, oh, this person texted me, I got this notification, this notification, and you start off your day with all that anxiety about notifications and it's just, it kind of never slows down from that point in my experience to as if you kind of start your day slower and not exposing yourself to that, it's more of a, you ease yourself into the day and have a little more relaxed and comfortable, comfortable day from my experience. Yeah. And let's be honest, you know, sometimes those notifications will give you a rush of joy and they'll be great. Oh, my friends love this travel photo of me. And sometimes those notifications are a bill or something in your email that you just don't want to deal with and they could really ruin your morning. So creating that bookend. And that's something that, you know, all the successful guests we've had on the Art of Charm podcast over the last 12 years have all talked about how they have routines and rituals that allow them to be more productive, that they know that their default programming doesn't get them the results that they want. So they've created routines and repetition to keep them from going astray, to keep them from sitting on social media for two hours before they have a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of started to speak to some of your guests there. I was wondering if you have any favorite or most memorable guests over the years. I know that recently a few that I really enjoyed was Kobe Bryant, of course, that was super cool to hear him on. Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard had a lot of cool insights. And then David Goggins as well. I'm uh, looking forward to reading his book soon when I, when I get a couple more uh, completed. Do you have any most memorable guests over, over the past few years? I think David Goggins is definitely the most memorable because mm -hmm. what's, what's so fascinating, uh, and, and he admits this, he, he shares this on the show, is that, you know, Goggins versus David. So, you know, we meet all of our guests, they come to the studio and we hang out in the green room a little bit before we actually go in and record. And he literally was just a different person. Mm -hmm. So when he walked into the green room, he was very meek, very mild and, and really shy. And you could tell he was, he was fairly shy. And then once we hit record and he was okay, settled in and, and the podcast is going, you know, Goggins comes out and, and all of a sudden it's this different personality and he's, created this alter ego for himself that allows him to go into places that he never thought were possible for him. Mm -hmm. And what was so uh, phenomenal to me about that episode was we literally got to see the change in person. And mm -hmm. that's what made that stand out. And, and obviously he's so, so charismatic when he's in the interview. And also he's just an amazing coach and so motivational. So that was right before Johnny and I were running our first half marathon. He's oh, yeah. an endurance runner. So he gave us a lot of tips on recovery and a lot of stories that motivated us to, to run the race. So that was definitely fun. Another guest uh, just in general for us was Tim Ferriss. We worked oh, yeah, for him. years and years to get him on the show. This was back before he had a podcast before podcasts were really popular. Um, and he was a tough get. And when we finally got him on the show, we got to talk about four hour work week. And at that point, four-hour body. Uh, and I had found his work to be so helpful for my own growth that it was great to have someone like him on the show. So yeah. those are definitely guests that stand out for me. Tim Ferriss is one of the people I look up to as well. He's, he's an amazing writer and just very – one of the most introspective people, I think, out there as far as coming up with new ideas and way of, ways of looking at things. Yeah, always tinkering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so speaking of Tim Ferriss and some of his books – uh, I was wondering what some of your favorite books are. You said you read a few at a time. Is there like categories or types of books you usually read or, or authors that you, you often come back to? 
So my network often supplies me with the reading list. So friends will send me books I want you to check out. We also have a bunch of people who are trying to get on the show. I have to read books for our guests. So I always have books sort of floating around me as well. Um, but right now, a book that I'm reading, business-based, Work the System, uh, I absolutely love it. I'm, I'm now trying to build out more systems in the business to create more freedom and more time for me ultimately. Um, but one of my all-time favorite books for anyone to read is Give and Take by Adam Grant. Okay. And he really looks at the, the power of being a giver, being someone who is willing to go above and beyond and be cooperative and help other people first instead of a taker who just looks for opportunities to get what they need. And Adam does a great job of breaking down why it's so important to be a giver and how it can help set you up in your career. And it's something that we've definitely taken to heart and we recommend all of our bootcamp participants in LA read it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of uh, a post I saw on Instagram by Gary Vee the other day. I think it says something along the lines of it's hard to be taken advantage of when you give without expectation. You know, yes. that that's one of the things I've come to realize too, is it's so intrinsically rewarding to give to other people that you don't even think about what you're going to get in return. But as a result of that, as weird as it is, you, you end up getting more in return, even though that's not what you're after. It's kind of like how you guys talk about happiness, where you're able to achieve happiness, but it's not your goal and it's not your aiming point. Exactly. And just the simple act of helping other people, providing value in their life, ultimately creates a high value environment around you mm -hmm. and attracts the right people to you so that when you do need something, you have that support because you've been supporting everyone throughout the years. And it's not coming at it of a, what can I get from this person? How can I get something that I need out of them? It's simply asking yourself, how can I help this person? Yeah. All right. Well, I want to respect your time here. So we'll go ahead and get down to the last couple questions. Okay. I wanted to touch on real quick. I was training your podcast recently. You had, I think it was like the three different value systems. Or yeah. So we, we talk about low value behaviors and high value behavior and something we should all aspire to. And going along with what Adam Grant said, you know, if we think about the lowest value behavior out there, it's the please like me attitude. It's begging people for their attention, approval, and acceptance. We call this supplicative. And it comes out in a lot of ways. It can come out in our body language. It can come out in, in our communication. But ultimately, the underlying subtext is, I don't value myself unless I get your attention. Now, as you could imagine, you know, that sets you up for a lot of failure with a lot of people taking advantage of you and, and really being that people pleaser that, that doesn't actually please anyone. Mm -hmm. The second low value behavior that we talk a lot about is combative. Now, this is someone who they need to get their attention, approval, and acceptance through physical, through being boisterous, through being dominant and domineering. And this combative attitude does not welcome positive, high-value people into your life. It just pushes people away. Yeah. But unfortunately, some of us have been raised in an environment where you know, our families, they only communicated in a yell. They only communicated through combative behavior. So it's a learned behavior that we've picked up but this combativeness actually doesn't allow you to connect with the right people. Now, the third low value behavior, this one's a little more subtle. This one is competitive. Now, this is your traditional one-upper who will say, oh, that's, you know, that's a great car you have. I used to drive that. Or, oh, you went here, I went there. Mm -hmm. They're always comparing where you are versus where they are. 
and they're celebrating every single time they win that competition. Now, this dynamic is healthy in sports, but it's not often healthy when it comes to building relationships, building trust, building friendships, building a network. Mm -hmm. So the value that we should all aspire to, as Adam Grant says, is that giver, is someone who's cooperative, who's looking to add value, looking to help the other person, not looking to take, whether it's begging for it, whether it's physically taking it, or whether it's competing for it. All of those behaviors we've identified as low value behaviors that ultimately do not allow people to trust us. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and being self-aware of that and realizing where you're at in relation to those and starting to find pivot points to, to become more high value is I think the most important thing you can do in the start to a lot of self-development. Yeah, these usually are in areas where you're feeling frustrated, you're feeling hurt, you're feeling taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And if you ask yourself, why am I feeling frustrated? You identify the reason that you're feeling frustrated. And instead of saying, okay, now I want to take it from the other person, look at it the opposite way. What could I do to help this person so they don't treat me this way, they don't behave this way around me? That simple reframe can create a space now for you to become more cooperative. And listen, there are, there are times in my life where I'm competitive. There are times in my life when I'm combative. I'm not always cooperative. Hmm. But the goal is to strive to always be cooperative to always be a team player, to always be someone that's helping and adding to the equation instead of taking. Yeah. All right. So hopefully we've, we've kind of primed your brain up for this last question here. Uh, I ask everybody at the end. So picture yourself uh, years and years down the road uh, when you're old and gray, looking back at your life. And what do you want your story to be in the story that you tell people about your life and also in the stories that the important people in your life tell about you? Well, I think one of my favorite quotes ever, it's actually on my Facebook, and I don't know uh, who the attribution goes to, but legacy is greater than currency. And I think at the end of this, when I look back on things, I would love my legacy to be that I help support shy, introverted guys and gals like myself overcome that hurdle to build strong connections and ultimately happiness. As you heard from our podcast series on happiness, Connected humans that are part of a community and have purpose ultimately are happier humans. And I feel that our generation and humans in general are becoming more and more disconnected. As technology is here, we're losing purpose in our work. We're being automated. Things are going more technologically advanced. And because of that, we're communicating less and less in a face-to-face -face setting. We're not relating to humans as we should that we know provides happiness for us. So I would love my legacy to look back and say that I've helped thousands of people like myself who are struggling with some social anxiety, may even be fully introverted, break out of that shell and have better connections. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great goal. And I think that just doing the art of charm and doing the coaching and things that you're doing, you're well on your way. And so um, to wrap up here for everyone listening, uh, AJ again is the co-host of the art of charm. Uh, you can find that on anywhere you listen to podcasts. And so I'll let him and give a little bit of final outro here. Absolutely. If, if you feel that you're struggling with a little shyness, you, you feel introverted, or the thought of walking up to strangers and striking up a conversation is a little unnerving, check out our free 10-day challenge. You can go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. We have a vibrant Facebook group. 
where you get some exercises over 10 days to really break out of your comfort zone and start using some of the skills that I just talked about here to have better conversations, to feel more comfortable and more confident in social settings. You can find me at theartofcharm.com. Thank you so much for having me as a guest on the show and I wish you the best with your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for being on the show. This has been the What's Your Story podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, uh, share with family and friends, and leave me a review. I really appreciate any and all feedback. Thanks.